Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel podcast where the fast eat the slow and the small eat the big. Yeah, I love it when that happens, don't you? Maybe unless you're big. I'm your host, Jeff Baines. I help B2B SaaS founders like you scale from seven figures, which is good, to eight and nine figures, which is outstanding. Together, we supercharge revenue growth, create premium valuation, and craft a business that you're proud of and a life of impact and freedom that you love. Welcome to Prime Day, or, you know, Tuesday. Actually, it is Prime Day as well. But uh, who would have thought that a simple online bookseller would grow big enough to have their own sales holiday, to be able to say, this is Prime Day and everybody's going to come shopping at our place. In the vast ocean of businesses, size often seems synonymous with success. Certainly, if you look at things like Prime Day or if you pay attention to TechCrunch, big or small, established or startup, growth is, of course, what we all want. Sometimes the, the big fish with rock star investors, deep pockets, huge revenues, and sprawling networks often seem unbeatable. But you know, size isn't everything. I write about that in my first book, Small Fish, Big Pond. Small companies can not only survive, but indeed thrive, even in waters that are full of larger competitors. Just like in the natural world, in business, it's not always the biggest fish that reigns. It's often the most adaptable, the quickest, the most innovative. Outwit, outswim, outlast. Now, it wasn't too long ago that a giant company owned the graphic design market for a long, long time. Now, who was that? Well, of course, it was it was Adobe, right? Giant company. You know, I bought their stuff year after year after year. It was expensive. A small SaaS company took on the giant. Uh, Melanie Perkins, Cliff Obricht, Cameron Adams created this company you've probably heard of called Canva and completely shook up the space. And Canva was indeed a small fish, but they didn't attempt to outsize the competition. They didn't take them on head on. Instead, they focused on being more accessible, more user-friendly, listening to their customers, something that Adobe stopped doing a long, long time ago. Canva democratized design, took it from the top and made it accessible to everyone. They opened the doors for everyone from students to business owners to really become their own graphic designers. After all, why did it need to be hard or expensive or take a long time? That was one of the ways that Adobe locked up the market is through cost and making it where it was accessible and my gosh, hard to use. Holy moly. I mean, if you've used Adobe products, they're terrible for UI and maybe they're better now. And if you get into the Adobe world and you learn how to do it, a lot of their stuff works the same and maybe it's a little bit intuitive, but uh, the learning curve is steep and they locked up the market that way. But Canva didn't do that. Canva didn't outgrow the giants. They outsmarted them. They didn't take them head on. Canva swam circles around them. They used the strengths that they had smaller size and scrappiness to innovate faster and serve their customers better, a lot better. Today, they're a unicorn company proving that being a small fish in a big pond can be a real big advantage. A chance to make a bigger splash. 
Now, I believe Melanie was the first woman-led unicorn startup, and, and they aren't done yet. Uh, you'll see them competing in the Office document space with Microsoft Office, Google Docs, things like that. And they're already way ahead of many others in AI. Keep an eye on Canva. Uh, we've seen a lot so far, and they've done some amazing things. They're not even close to done yet. Just wait. So as we delve into our conversation today, let's remember it's not about being the biggest fish. In the SaaS world, size is irrelevant. The small can eat the big and regularly do. It's about being the most agile, the most adaptable, the one that outmaneuvers the giants regardless of their size. Outwit, outswim, outlast. And today's guest has done just that. He's been extremely smart outmaneuvering the giants and proving that when it comes to finding treasure, the most innovative company gets the gold. If you're ready to raise your leadership game and outwit, outswim, outlast, check out today's sponsor. It's a book, Small Fish, Big Pond, Building a World-Class Business that Swim Circles Around Competitors. So why do some SaaS companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? Why do some solutions inspire fierce loyalty while others are just interchangeable. And what can we as SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful marketing and leadership lessons guaranteed to enhance your marketing message, wrap value around your clients, and guide their buying journey to conclude that your company is the only solution for them. It includes step-by-step -step frameworks and time-tested growth principles to attract ideal clients, convert them, and then transform them into your brand ambassadors. Pick up the print ebook or audio today. We do have a special deal going on right now at Amazon because it's Prime Day. You can learn more at smallfishbigpond.com or just hop right over to Amazon and pick it up however you'd like. Uh, the Kindle book might even be free. You should go check that out and see. Again, Amazon, Small Fish Big Pond. Building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. Our expert guest last week was Nicholas Means, who leads the engineering team at Sim, helping create the building blocks to create delightful, just-in-time access workflows. Very cool. Such a great conversation. Outstanding insights on bringing projects in on time and budget and with happy team members and clients. Our founder on Tuesday last week, Independence Day, Freedom Day, was Charles Darrow, CEO and co-founder of BZOP, a process management software that gets us organized so that we can enjoy entrepreneurial freedom. And Charles knows a thing or two about leading international teams and doing some really cool things there. So if you missed either of those episodes, go back and give them a listen. My guest this week is somebody I have tremendous respect for. Kazuki Ada, Kaz Ada. He is the CEO of Treasure Data. It's a leading consumer data platform. He started as the founder and chief technology officer and then moved into the CEO role. Kaz moved to America without even knowing how to speak English. And when he overcame that obstacle, majored in computer science, which is a difficult thing to do, learning a language, doing that. And during that time, his professor built the world's fastest supercomputer. It's like 500,000 computers combined into one. And Kaz was part of the team that built the file system for that. A longtime open source advocate, Kaz has made numerous contributions to open source software and was instrumental in developing the open source applications Fluented, Embulk, and MessagePack. Kaz is also really deep into gaming, especially Fortnite. You can probably find him on there. Welcome, overcomer and all-around champion, Kaz Ada. 
Hey, Kaz, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. I uh, love your background. It, it's fairly traditional. A lot of uh, clients I work with you know, come up through the technical ranks. You were CTO for 12 years and have moved into the CEO role now. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background and, and how that transition has been. Sure. So I majored in computer science when I was in university. And my professor has built the world's fastest supercomputer at that time, which was an exciting project. Yeah, And I was a part of the team to build the file system for that supercomputer, which means, you know, there's a lot of data generated by those supercomputer, but then our system is trying to process that large amount of data, right? So that gave me an experience of handling large-scale data set. And then, you know, around when I was 25, I was nothing to lose. I couldn't speak any English, but come to the Silicon Valley and started this company called Treasure Data. And now it's an industry-leading CDP customer data platform company. So very interesting journey I had. Yes, yes. What was that like going to Silicon Valley? And uh, I mean, you had the technical chops for sure, but then being in a a different place and, and not speaking the language. Yeah, it was a really, I would say, Risky choice, but at the same time, I was, I had nothing to lose, right? So I grew up with the family where, you know, my parents run their own business. So after the graduation, I started my first company in Japan. And that was a search engine company, but focused only on the uh, Japanese market, right? And, you know, I was a CTO at the time, but, um, you know, we grew from like three, four people to 40 people after like four or five years. But then we just real, I just realized that, you know what, to run the software company, it's far better to be in Silicon Valley so that I have an access to all the greatest talents and, you know, minds, entrepreneurs, uh, VCs and communities, right? And uh, it was really lucky that I got a, you know, co-founder who was in the VC industry for five years in Silicon Valley and then, you know, got to know each other and then started the company together. And uh, it was really hard, you know, for the first, you know, I think nine months, we pitched to 50 investors and they all denied. But, uh, you know, it's a process, right? You know, you have to try out your ideas and then lucky us, we got one legendary VC whose name is called Bill Tai. He invested into Treasure Data and, you know, since then, we had a lot of luck growing from just three people to now almost 700 people across the growth. Yeah, that's a lot. I think it's a little bit more than luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, 50 pitches, that's a lot. And then, you know, what was yeah. it, 51 or somewhere after that? Yeah. To get the yes. So he was, he was really lucky. Like Bill Tai is a really legendary VC who invested into company who does telecommunication software, which I saw with everyone told it's commodity and the company is called Zoom. Okay. <laughs> right. 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 He, yeah. That commodity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's commodity. Right. But they killed it. Uh, yes. Bill Tai at the same time invested into this like, uh, lady who just came from Australia and trying to find a co-founder and that company became the company called Canva. It's like $20 billion plus valuation now. So I think Bill has this like a really good instinct on what's going to come in the next wave. 
And then we were so lucky to have uh, him as a first angel investor. And after Bill invested in, 10 people who he introduced, you know, decided to invest in it to us. That's great. So what was some of the feedback that you got as an early founder pitching to, to VCs? And what did they tell you that the first 50 that said no? Yeah, so that was interesting. So initial idea of treasure data is, you know, my background was large scale data processing, but that's only limited to the academic, um, you know, environment or government, right? Or research institute. So my idea is like, why don't we bring this infrastructure into the cloud so that, you know, when you are trying to analyze and process a lot of data, uh, people needed to buy like a bunch of hardware and software and networking gears and hire a bunch of PhDs to set it up. But our idea is like, why don't we bring everything into the cloud so that you can just subscribe the service and instantly start analyzing the data, right? That sounds like a, you know, common idea now, but right. it was, you know, 12, 13 years ago, a lot of VCs and angel investors like, you know, you know, Kyle's like, who will throw away the data to the cloud? I don't think that's going to happen. That was a feedback. And I'm glad we bet that risk. <laughs> and uh, now everyone is processing a lot of data in the cloud, right? Right. So that was right. an interesting feedback. Yeah, I've been in the, the SaaS world before Before it was SaaS. It was ASP uh, when we started. And that was a major concern of like, where's my data going? How is it? You know, what is the cloud? Is it secure? That kind of thing. And uh, and so a lot has changed. I mean, 12, 13 years is an eternity in the technical world. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one advice that we've got from Biltai is you always have to fish at the big pond like on your background, right? If there's no market or there's no pawn, you can't grow. So the data was like growing exponentially. And after 11, 12 years, it's still growing exponentially, right? So unless the data set or, you know, the industry or time is growing, um, you know, whether I'm doing better or not, it's pulled by the market, right? So I think one genius part of his investment was like he bet on the market, which definitely paid off. Paid off. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. There's certainly no shortage of data. Yeah. And you're competing with some of the the maybe big players in the the market space. And how was that to be able to come in? And how did you compete as a challenger against some of the the bigger players? Yeah. So just to clarify, we're offering the product called CDP, Customer Data Platform. So a lot of world's leading brands is collecting data into a platform and using this customer information to personalize a lot of marketing, sales, and also customer support um, activities by looking at this customer data, right? And, you know, our competitor, maybe we have like 150 competitors in the market. Only 150? Yeah, only 150, <laughs> right? No shortage of it. And uh, the big ones include like usual names like Salesforce has its own CDP product, Adobe CDP, Microsoft has its own, right? SAP, Oracle. And those are like big guys, right? But when it comes to if someone evaluate treasure data, we have a 85% win rate against wow. those competitors. So 
it's just like deliver best product, right? And uh, also, I think what I realize is all these large software vendor is trying to grow more suites and stack by themselves, right? So obviously, Salesforce wants everything from buying from Salesforce, right? Right. Adobe wants to have like hundreds of product and then their customer will buy everything from Adobe, right? But if you go to enterprise, it's not the case, right? There's no company who can supply 100% of the software for your business. You buy a lot of solution from a lot of vendors, right? Right. So the way we position against them is, you know, treasure data comes in and then saying, you know what? You have Salesforce stack, Adobe stack, Oracle stack, IBM stack, AWS stack, Microsoft stack, everywhere, multiple divisions and countries, right? It's okay. Treasure data comes in as a, you know, Switzerland best of breed approach where we'll work with everyone and then we can integrate everything. That positioning is something no one can have if you're a big vendor because we want to lock in, right? right? We can help you avoiding locking, right? So that's that messaging and positioning is pretty that much working as an underdog. And that's, that's how we are actually winning the, um, the prospects and customers right now. And that makes a lot of sense, especially the larger the organization. They don't want to be completely beholden to, to a single technology vendor and uh, they have that flexibility. So that makes a, a lot of sense. Is that something, an idea that you had coming to market or a co-founder or how did you land on that positioning? Yeah, so this is through a lot of learning, right? So we once tried to compete directly against them. But then, you know, a lot of customer told us, you know what, I think this is the unique point you have, right? So I think it's not like we invented it. It's about like how uh, customers told us. That's really good feedback. Yeah. So a lot has changed. I mean, since you started the, the company, more and more data um, you know, more and more people in companies embracing the cloud and and cloud usage. Uh, where do you see the industry going over the next, uh, say, ten years? Even five yeah. years. Yeah, I would say you know, first of all, um, the market we're in is called Martech, right? So within SaaS economy, there's lots of category, but first of all, we're in this like Martech software category. What is interesting about this category is every year there's like a thousands or two thousand vendors <laughs> coming into this square. There's a famous what's it called Martech Chaos Map. Last yeah. year there was a ten thousand vendor. This year there's like eleven thousand vendor, right? So there's this like a Cambrian uh, era where all the SaaS companies get into the market. And I would say, you know, a lot of vendors is getting confused, right? So why Treasure Data exists is the more you buy more solutions, your customer data gets siloed across all these small point solutions. Right. But if you buy platform products such as Treasure Data, you can consolidate some of this, at least from data perspective, right? So, you know, with the economic downturn and a lot of... Um, you know, everyone's software budget is getting contracted. I would say, you know, in next like uh, two years, three years, we'll probably see some of the contraction of like, okay, who actually solves the burning needs, right? There's no good to have anymore. 
you must solve big problems and you need to be in the fundamental solution. And that's kind of the game we're in as a SaaS industry, right? Before the industry was growing 30, 40%, you know, as a time. But this year, according to Gartner, only 13% is, is the growth for the IT software spend. And if the pond is not growing, you start easting each other, right? So we'll probably right. see more competition stealing your customer. And then we need to steal the, the customer uh, from your competition too, right? So I guess that will heat up a little bit. Now, you know, talking about like five years, 10 years, you know, last uh, weekend, I've been playing around ChatGPT and its own API, right? And uh, it's amazing about the technology, but when I interact, it feels like you can use for everything. Yes. But then if you put that into um, the actual questions customers asking, a lot of questions <laughs> that GPT is answering with the domain knowledge is wrong, right? right. So right. this is still an evolution of what we're doing with the LLM, large language models. Now, if you look at our marketing technology, um, we have, there's three fundamental um, components to it. One is data, and then we have decisioning, right? Okay, you have customer data, and you have to decide what to do with that customer. And then finally, it's content, right? So you have to decide which content you want to show to whom, when, using the data. So that's how, right. you know, marketing technology works, right? And I see a huge disruption coming in on the content side, right? It's basically you can create videos, images, sound, and everything, the visuals, but just typing some like natural languages and generative AI can generate it, right? And if you can generate, you know, thousands of images or even millions of images, um, AI or data can optimize its creative or content by itself, right? As there's a company who will generate the blog post based on some of the search keyword you want to optimize for, right? So I think last, uh, I don't know, since the uh, human's perception, art is the thing, but now it's getting more generated by like machines and images, right? right. Every pixel is getting generated, not drawn anymore, right? So yep. in this circumstance, I think it will be interesting how much of the work human is doing versus AI will be assisting or even uh, disrupting it. That definitely is, I, I, I know everyone's talking about, but I'm feeling this as a first hand in the market category. I think that's really interesting. How does that affect the, the consumer data? And, and being able to process that with AI, does it mean that we'll be served ads that are, are more relevant or that uh, AI will, will be able to predict you know, what we want or uh, actions or activities? Yeah, I think it, a lot of prediction is already there. Meaning, you know, if you open up the Tesla or if you even open up the Uber or Google map, you sometimes will be amazed how much they know, right? Okay. Yes. Is, you want to go. I'm like, why do you know it, right? And uh, from our customer base, based on the digital behavior, meaning right now, a lot of customers' behavior is now going into digital 
And then according to McKinsey, 70% of customer behavior is now happening in the digital world. And then, you know, when I'm talking with the automotive customer, previously prospects are visiting their dealership six to seven times a week to make a purchase. Right. But now on average, it's 1.2 times. So they do a lot of research online, come to the dealership and make a purchase. Right. Right. So that's happening for every single business right now. So to answer your question, I think if people are moving from more like offline behavior to online behavior, so understanding the customer behavior by data and then influence their decisions in the digital economy or digital channel is becoming much more important. And that's how you win against competitors, right? AI will further fuel that war because if you can try out some more content, and images and blogs and music to attract your you know, interest from your prospects, that's how you win against your competitors. Do you think that waters down the content or the ads or the engagement? Or do you think that that enhances it? Um, I would say like it, it will enhance it. You know, I think it will be more personalized. You can test out like millions of patterns, right? Interesting um, audios and images and maybe visuals, right? So we'll sure. see how this goes. But I already noticed that a lot of images, and videos in the social world is actually getting generated by AI. So I, I already feels like, you know, oh, okay, this, this ads or banner is actually generated by machine, not human. So things are happening. How do you know? Well, sometimes people's hand is in different shape. <laughs> it, it does hands very poorly today. Right. But yeah. it will be fixed. But, you know, if you look at this carefully, then you will notice it. Right. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. We're definitely starting to, to see more and more of that. So in building your company, did you always have the same vision or were there pivots along the way? It was a hard pivot happened around 2015 or 16. So the way it worked was we initially launched a product, which is cloud data analytics and processing infrastructure. And then Amazon, Google, Microsoft is was releasing the same product. So they're trying to commoditize everything from the bottom, right? So around that time, we were in huge trouble. Like customers were leaving, uh, contract sizes becoming smaller because you can try out those products from like one dollar. We're charging $3,000 a month. Like why customer will go for us, right? Right. And uh, so that was in huge trouble. And... Uh, I still remember, but uh, one of our angel investors introduced by Bill Tai was Jerry Young, who was the founder of Yahoo search engine. He gave us an advice where, you know, you have two options. One is, you know, raise a bunch of money to fight against GAFA for the um, performance per price, but that's going to be really hard. The other way to look at it is you build some application on top of your platform so add more value on top of it and selling this as more like complete solution rather than infrastructure like Amazon, Google, Microsoft's um, infrastructure cloud, right? So we took a pass and we interviewed a lot of customer and then realized that a lot of customer is using our product to analyze customer data. And marketing is the division who is asking a lot of access to the data. So 
That's why we built the marketing customer data analytics application on top of our general data platform. And we didn't know what to call this, but then, you know, I also found out this little category called CDP, customer data platform. It was maybe, you know, eight to 10 vendors at the point. And then we decided to pivot into that company. And since then, our growth has been accelerated, you know, acquiring a bunch of, uh, you know, exciting new logos together. And uh, yeah, that was a hard pivot. I mean, even one VP who was leading the sales was trying to fire me because I was leading product and engineering. And all of a sudden, I'm going into like much different direction. He wasn't convinced around, right? So lots of human drama happened too. <laughs> yeah, it definitely happens. That's really good advice to be able to, to really kind of raise the value. And, uh, and really smart on your part to talk with the clients and really understand how they're using it to, to right. determine what niche to go into. Yeah. I guess like a lot of startup wants to be the layer within the stack, but then it's actually really hard to sell because um, buyers are looking for complete solution for a certain problem. Right. Right. So everyone's saying, oh, we're a platform. It's not. <laughs> Right? I hear that all the time. You need a platform to build more solutions, but you have to sell solution to solve the problem. The platform is the way to solve more problems once you're getting in. Right. So that was um, kind of people we have done. And that's interesting too, just some of your competitors, that's what, what they want to be is that whole platform and you buy everything, the, the one-stop shop. Yeah. And so that's a, you know, a differentiator for you. Yeah, exactly. So what lessons have you learned, you know, in building treasure data? Yeah. So around when we started the company, um, there was a similar concept coming out from, let's say, oh, there are three people startup popped up from, you know, Google or ex Facebook team or, you know, Stanford CS grad, right? And we were just, three boring entrepreneur come to the country and I couldn't even speak language, right? <laughs> but, you know, after 12 years, those companies are all gone. And I think the biggest lesson is like, you, you always have to learn, understand from the customer, right? Build what they need, not like build what you want. <laughs> Right. I mean, you sometimes need some forward thinking, you know what, this is where the industry is going and then bet on that. But fundamentally, you just what you do as a software company and there's a customer and we'll learn from them. And then we'll always think about next set of customer we can go. And then we do a little bit of stretch, but still keep learning from the customer and then keep growing the time like total addressable market. Right. So I'm just, it, it feels like a basic, but, you know, a lot of entrepreneur doesn't do it. You just build what you want to build. And that's kind of the, what we observe. And then we just didn't do it. Yeah, I see that all the time. Somebody builds a solution and goes looking for a market to sell it to. Instead of yeah. what you're saying, go to the market, find out what they want, and then build that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very different approach. What else? What other lessons or what mistakes? Uh, I have a bunch of mistakes. Um, <laughs> Me too. I mean, lots of, 
lots of hires, like executives hire is always challenging, right? Head of sales, head of marketing, head of customer success, head of engineering, head of product. And we made all sorts of mistakes, right? I would say, you know, we'll definitely make sure someone can come in and then, you know, work out. But probably half of the case, they don't. Why is Even that? if they worked out. But why is it? It's probably, you know, different things. You know, in the initial one year or two years, we were always thinking like, you know what, if someone comes from Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they're so clever and they will figure it out and they don't because that's just not the face, right? We're scrappy. You know, we will do everything. And yeah, you very know, different. Those big company executives had all these infrastructure. They didn't realize it to make them successful, right? So we almost hired executive based on their background big company corporate experience and it just didn't work out and then you know as we're growing there's like different phases right okay first we'll do everything to go with this like um product market fit and then we need to go after okay maybe five logos to ten logos we're starting seeing some repeatability right and then we're scaling from like 10 companies to 100 companies and then a thousand companies, right? So each space has its own different skill set. And, um, you know, it's just like a brutal fact that every phase needs different type of leadership and people, right? So for us, a lot of mistake is like we're late on that change like okay this is what company needs and this is the talent we have and then we always need to assess and sometimes the decision was too late that's really hard to do when when you have somebody that that is just not growing or or doesn't have the capacity to grow to that next level someone who is really successful right and all of a sudden you probably need different people and it's a hard hard feeling like okay we're succeeding together and then all of a sudden we're having challenge with that particular functions or leader right yeah so how do you do that as a leader i mean you've gone from you know startup you you and co-founder to you know what what is now a thousand now 700 people yeah probably pushing a thousand (laughs) hopefully (laughs) yeah i mean so a significant ramp uh, so how have you continued to to stay ahead of the curve and continue to develop as a leader? Yeah, I mean, I think leadership skill set is something you can learn, right? So I have a coach who pushes me hard and really good co-founder and board who advise me often, right? And uh, I have to say, like, you know, when I go to CEO conference of the similar size, I'm usually the youngest, Right. Sure. And, um, you know, from diversity perspective, too, I don't say this too often, but I'm probably the only Asian sometimes, especially Japanese. Right. So I, I know I'm, um, I need to grow. Right. So the only thing which makes me, you know, I would say, okay, uh, we can execute and then build a performance company is to hire the best talent. Right. So I'm always making sure like, okay, assess the talent you have and I always spend time to hire, you know, next great talent in the industry, especially right now because of downturn, a lot of people in the 
competitor company also is thinking to leave if they're not going right. well. Right. So that's kind of like, okay, well, there are some people who even reach out to me for the next possible opportunity. So it's a really interesting period of time. But, you know, again, all I can do is I got to energize the company, build the visions and directions, give meanings to every day's work and bring the best talent. So that's how I, I, I make sure I can lead this organization. How do you find the best talent? You know, what do you have specific things that you do to, to attract and, and hire the yeah. best? So right now, Treasure Data is one interesting company which has a like really high ratio of referrals, right? Uh, we don't pay a lot of commissions to the external recruiters. That's Instead, good. we have we're trying to have this culture of referring people, right? So okay, you know, we recently hired a CMO, but I posted to the company channel, you know what, we're hiring CMO. And you guys worked in the industry for 10 years, 20 years, just refer to me the best talent, right? That's how I found out the CMO who is joining soon, right? And obviously, if I feel like, okay, I probably need to explore outside of CDP industry, for example, I'm using recruiting talent, recruiters, or executive recruiting farm, um, so that, you know, they're going to reach out to, you know, every single SaaS company right. and try to find the talent. And that's great feeling because you feel like, oh, you know, we're actually finding the best one in the industry because we literally took a look at every single options for us, but it comes with the cost, right? So there's like a pros and sure. cons. Sure. Yeah, I think it is really interesting right now, just that the talent that's on the market hasn't been available, at least in yeah. this, this quantity and, and certainly in a lot of cases, quality for the, yeah. the past four or five years. Yeah, exactly. So where do you see the economy going and, and if, how do you see that affecting the, the SaaS businesses? It's greatly affecting. But at the same time, it's interesting. You know, we have a business around the globe, U.S. market. Europe market and APAC market, and they behave differently. Yes. So I'm actually glad I have three regions and then, you know, I have a way to hedge against each market, right? I think Europe was really tough last year, you know, because of the Ukraine war and everything, the raising cost of electricities and powers and everything makes it really, really hard for their economy. Yes. And a lot of SaaS companies also suffer from like Europe uh, market, right? And then probably November, December last year, we started seeing huge disrelation of a pipeline in the industry for US market, right? A lot of people is just not buying SaaS solution right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> Our CFO even is like, no, no more new solution, right? I think the only thing we bought is probably ChatGPT in Copilot recently, but that's it, right? Okay. So you're basically saying, you know what? Reduce the number of software in the company. And we reduced from 60 to 130 or something last uh, three months or so. And that just keep going, right? And, you know, that's inside of us, but then I'm sure lots of companies doing it, right? 
And uh, looking at like uh, APAC, I don't feel much of the deceleration, but it's just like the market pie is smaller there, right? Because they don't they... pay out a lot for the SaaS companies, right? So each company and country, sorry, each country has its own like pros and cons in different states. And then, you know, what it, it's, it's really interesting to run this like a global business. Like how do you maximize your investment into different regions so that I can get the maximum outcome. So how do you stay ahead of that as a company and, and get people to buy? And then the same thing for talent, how are you retaining you know, your team? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is as a messaging, meaning like if it's a downturn, we can say, you know what, CDP can boost your revenue and save the money by consolidating multiple tools, Sure. right? So if you give me a million data, we're going to reduce two to three million data of software cost. And we're going to improve 1% of conversion, which will bring you additional 10 million data in revenue. And we can reduce 1% of churn, which will bring in another 10 million. So that's kind of how you convince your customers, right? You know, That's compelling. I, yeah, tie your value with the actual data so that you're convinced that, okay, this is high priority or burning needs for the company, right? Right. So previously, it's about, okay, provide better experience for the customer and all these. It's a little fluffy message. Now, everyone needs this like a money talk, right? Right. You pay your data, what's the ROI return? Right, that's something you always need to tell. Is that yeah. something that the market is is jaded to? Or are they still really accepting of that? Um, because a lot of times ROI is put out there, but then they don't see it. Yeah, I mean you have to prove it, right? So you know what's it's interesting is like unlike infrastructure software, Martech is something you can prove the value, right? Okay, you run this campaign through CDP, and those are the revenue you actually get. So that actually helps us because I can say, you know what, you're paying five million, but you made hundred and fifty million. That feels like cheap investment. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's something um, you know we're really focused on on the customer success side. That's good too because marketing and, and martech they're used to looking at those types of numbers. They're looking for ROI on campaigns, and so it yeah. just makes sense that they would yeah. be looking for that. So that that's a really good way to, to position it. Yeah. And what about talent? You know, what are you doing to, to hold on and retain talent? Yes, I would say right now, um, there's a lot of talent outside too, right? You know, there's huge layoff going on. So I think um, <laughs> I have to be really honest. People are not leaving. We're seeing lowest attribution attrition because they know there's no job outside, Right. I think what's important for us right now is um, it's uncertain. It's, right. it, it's, it's more I would say, important to show the transparency of what's happening, right? Well, let's accept the fact, you know, U.S. pipeline growth is shrinking. So that's why sometimes we need to make hard decisions on reducing sales capacity, for example. Sure. Right. So... I think, you know, along the way, we made a lot of tough decisions, but I think the leadership has to describe why in a transparent manner. And then I think, you know, 
it's important to even tell the bad news, not even like exciting you know, new logo or everyone. I think good news will fly automatically, bad news is not. And it's important for us right now is to, you know, make it transparent so that, you know, everyone feels like it's a part of the team, right? Yeah, that's you know? really important. And, and being honest about the, the bad news as well. I think you're right. A lot of people want to hold yeah. on to that. And I don't want to tell them. But uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with the humans and uh, for the most part, grown-up adults who, yeah, who you exactly. know, should be able to, to handle that. And I think that, that yeah. when we're honest and we have those conversations, that, uh, that they can right. handle it. Yeah. You need to balance like data-driven decisions versus your empathy emotion, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they can handle bad body. news, but they can't handle uncertainty near as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what is one thing that uh, you wish you could go back and tell yourself when you very first started Treasure Data? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, I'm enjoying, <laughs> right? So I can tell, I don't know, 10 years before, like, just enjoy, you know? Every day is tough, you know? Um, but, uh, I think as long as you can enjoy, you can keep going and, uh, you know, you get 1% better every day that compounds, right? You don't have to, you know, make 10% better every day. You just have to be better than yesterday and just keep going. And if you keep going like 10 years, it compounds, right? From yeah. Zero to $100 million plus. So that's, um, that's something I can tell to him. That's great. So why do you do what you do? You know, what is your big why? What gets you up? What gets you excited about uh, Treasure Data and, and continuing to build and grow? Yeah, so it's a huge opportunity. Um, we have around 50 to 60 customers in what's it's called Forbes Global 2000 companies. So it's called G2K, right? It's okay. a it's the largest 2,000 companies in terms of the company valuation and revenue, like multiple measures, right? So we only have 50. So we have 1,950 to go. Wow. <laughs> right? That's a so great it's like, goal. It's like a 40x more. And we already exceeded 100 million. Wow. So just with this single product, we have huge opportunity. Yes. Right. What if we can expand product portfolio going into different like buying center or budget that further increasing increases the, the the time like total addressable market we have, right? Right. So it's just an opportunity we have that excites me the most. And just as statistically uh, statistics numbers, but right now there are 8 billion people on the earth and there are 4.5 billion people who is internet connected, right? Wow. And treasure data actually manages around two to 3 billion people's data. That's amazing. 60 to 70% of online population, right? So every single one of person works at treasure data as an influence to those billions of people every day. And for me as a CEO, obviously has a lot of influence to it, right? We can make billions of people's lives easier, safer, more convenient, right? Through the data. So that itself 
feels like, you know what, this is once in a life opportunity and like, I have to go, right? Yeah. So I hope that's that answered your question. Yes, yes, that's fantastic. Where can people learn more about you and about Treasure Data online? Sure. So to learn more about Treasure Data CDP customer data platform, go to www.treasuredata.com. And uh, to get to know more about myself, um, I'm on LinkedIn. So search Kazuki Ota on LinkedIn and please connect or send the messaging. And I also have my personal website linked from LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And we'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes. Really appreciate you being on the show today. And it's been a great, great conversation. Thank you very much for having me, Jeff. Thanks again, Kaz, for coming on the show and sharing your journey, wisdom, and insights as a founder. You can learn more about Kaz and Treasure Data at treasuredata.com. You know, all of us should be mining the data that we have for more treasure because it's in there. And they help us do that. It's really, really cool. All links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to check out our new YouTube channel as well. Podcast episodes, SAS training, shorts, outtakes, funny stuff, and more. Everyone who subscribes this week gets a portable solar-powered speaker for impromptu dance parties at the beach park or maybe in your own home office. Yeah, it sounds like a prime deal, doesn't it? Well, join us next time on our SaaS Fuel Expert Series for Carlos Antiquera. He is the CEO and co-founder of Novel Capital. It's a fintech that is changing the way startup founders grow and fund their businesses. He's a former exited founder, angel investor, and he has great insights into funding your business creatively and keeping your equity. Something that I tell everybody hold on to. And it's a good conversation. And next Tuesday, a week from today, we have Mike Ryan, founder and CEO of SpySax, where he helps businesses who struggle with applying technology advances to consumer-facing problems create great outcomes. And he does that through low-code, no-code applications, and kind of like Canva put graphic design in the hands of the masses, he puts code in the hands of the masses. So I will see you then. Happy Prime Day. And as always, enjoy the journey. Thanks for listening to SAS Fuel. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at sasfuel.com. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.